0: Um, well, it would be great to have John's Gospel open in front of you, um, and uh, if you've got a Bible on the way in, then uh, you can find that on page 1061, and uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in John's Gospel over the next few weeks, and uh, we're picking up John's theme of light, and uh, using this sort of strap-line light to live by. The way you begin something is very significant. Um, the way that you start out on a journey, the stuff you take with you, the way that first few pages of a book. Um, that's one of those issues for um, people who make TV serials. They know that they've got to capture the viewer in those first few moments. And more than that, they've got to make sure that the viewer knows what to expect, knows what sort of programme. This is. Um, we started watching last night a week late. Um, the War and Peace. I don't know whether any of you have caught that on the BBC. Great costume drama, and uh, right from the opening, you know what sort of thing this is going to be. You just sort of, it's, you just sort of sink into it like one of these sort of luxurious armchairs. You know, this is, you know, this is sweeping landscapes and and romance and and uh, you know where you're going with it. John's Gospel. Um, is one of those books that you read where everything's laid out for you in the first few sentences. John isn't simply setting out to write a list of things that Jesus said and did. In fact, none of the Gospel writers try and do that. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, those four accounts of the life of Jesus that we find at the beginning of the New Testament. None of them are simply record keepers, as if they have no interest in the subject, they simply want to say, he did this, then he did that, then he did the other. Why? Because it's far too important for that. Like any good historian, like like any good biographer, they've got a story to tell. They want us to know something about this person that they thought is important enough to write a book about. And so John, as he writes his Gospel, probably the last of the four Gospels to be written, though intriguingly, um, we have a fragment of John's Gospel that is the earliest of any of the bits of the New Testament that we have. Even though he was the last of the four Gospels to write, there's a fragment of John's Gospel dating from just two or three decades after the life of Jesus um, that's in the Rylands um, Library in Manchester University. um, Days from AD 70, a little fragment of John. But he writes with a purpose. He writes because he wants us to know who this Jesus is, what he's come to do, and what we should do about it. Who this Jesus is, what he's come to do, and what we should do about it. So just very simply, just for a few minutes, we're going to look at these first few verses of John, and we're going to let it sort of... Lay out an agenda for the next few weeks. We're going to read every verse of John as we go through it over the next few weeks. We've picked out um, a few key passages as we go through. Um, I guess a little challenge would be, if you've never read a gospel, in fact, even if you've never read John, or even if you've not read John for a few years, any of the above, why not take as one of your New Year's resolutions simply to sit down with a modern version of a Bible and read the book of John from the beginning to the end? If you're a decently quick reader, you could read the entire thing in way less than an hour. It's not a big task. And if, you, if the only version of the Bible that you've got at home is a very um, oldy-worldy one that uses these and those and thys, uh, that's perfectly acceptable. But if you're finding it trips you up and you're struggling to read it, have one of these on me. Okay, well, I'm always giving these away. You're welcome to take one and keep it, okay? Literally, just, you're not stealing it, it's a gift. Take it away with you. Um, this is uh, the NIV, um, the uh, Nearly Intelligible Version, or the New International Version, as it's officially called. And uh, it's a decent modern translation. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. Um, most of us don't read Greek, and so we translate it into English. And of course, in every generation, we need a fresh translation so that it reads easily. If you've not read John's Gospel, just read it cover to cover. Whether in one sitting or over three weeks, doesn't matter. Get the feel of it as a story. John wants us to get into the story of who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and what should we do about it. Now, you know me well enough by now to know that I very rarely do sermons that have three points all beginning with the same letter. But just for being different, today we have three things all beginning with the same letter. Hopefully that'll make them easy to remember. And and it's a great way, I think, of summarising Those three things. Who Jesus is, he's come to pitch his tent, or literally, a little bit more literally, to tabernacle amongst us. We'll come back to that. What he's come to do? To bring transformation. What do we do about it? Well, that's summed up in that word testimony. Those who uh, speak of what they've known live out of who they've met. So that first T, t tent or tabernacle. Um, it we'll spend the most time on it because it's, it's the most remarkable of these three. Have a, have a listen to these first few verses. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, in him was life, that life was the light of people. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. You hear those first few verses, and it's, and it's the sort of explosion going off. Here is the one who is before all things. The light himself is coming into the world. Light in the darkness. Here is God himself coming in human flesh. The creator of all things, coming to that which he has created. As one uh, writer put it, it you, you have to imagine this idea of here is God, who somehow within reality, which He's made, makes this world, makes this universe, and then steps inside the reality that He's made. It's a remarkable thing. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully in the Last Battle. As um, I think it's, uh, I can't remember who says it to Lucy, um, and he, he the, the, whoever says it to Lucy, says something like this. Um, uh, on the earth, there is a stable in which is greater than the whole universe. There is a stable in which is greater than the whole universe. So on one level, you read these first few verses, you think, wow, John is going to um, give us this explosive account of God coming into the world that he's made. And in modern terms, you'd imagine somebody arriving in a, 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 in a tank at the, the, the front of an armored division. Or somebody living in this enormous palace with flags on the turrets and gold crockery and and this incredible sense of the one who's made it all, who's greater than the universe, stepping in amongst us and us going, wow, who's that? But John is writing about the God who steps into our world and pitches his tent. It's there in verse um, 14. The word became flesh... And made his dwelling among us. Two words there that should give us a moment to pause. Flesh. God doesn't come as this sort of supra-being that towers above us, somehow greater than reality. He comes as flesh. Flesh that can cut and bleed, that can itch, that has dandruff, that has feet that need washing, has armpits that smell, that leave footprints in the dust. This is God made flesh. And then really to press home the point, he talks about, as we've got translated here, and made his dwelling among us. That's translating one little Greek word that is actually the word from which we get the word scene, as in a scene in a play or scenery. And that's because back in the day, scenery used to be made from the same cloth as tents. So you'd you'd get tent canvas, stretch it over a, a, a flat, paint it, and that would make your scenery. In other words, this word in Greek is a word to do with tenting, uh, pitching your tent. Now, back in the Old Testament, they were very familiar with this idea. When they escaped from Egypt with Moses, they had to come through the desert on the way to the promised land. They all lived in tents. And the remarkable thing was that Moses said, God is going to come and tent, or the literal word was tabernacle, with you. His tent was called the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the place which represented God's presence with his people. Just a flimsy old tent. Just canvas on poles. And here he is saying, this God made flesh, this God of the whole universe is going to come and pitch his tent, tabernacle, with you. I have a very vivid memory of of going camping. In fact, many vivid memories. It was uh, scarred, I mean, uh, uh, sort of uh, featured in my uh, childhood for many, many years. We used to go every single summer to the Gower Peninsula, Beautiful part of the world if you're living uh, living there, or if you're in a very warm, smart B&B. Um, we used to camp, and we used to be in a, a one of those old-style frame tents. The four of us um, on a cliff top above what is regularly voted as one of the top ten beaches in the whole of the UK, uh, Three Cliffs Bay. And if you've never been there, honestly, it's worth it, but not in a tent. And um, we used to camp on this uh, in this farmer's field, um, and uh, it was beautiful. I mean, you could look out at the sea and look down to the beach. In 1977, I think it was, we were there in the summer during what became known as the Fastnet Gales. Um, So-called because the Fastnet Race, which was just passing by, um, these yachts sailing by between us and Ireland, um, uh, got caught up in what was um, Storm Force 10, hurric- gusting Hurricane Force 11 winds. And we were in a tent on a clifftop. top. <laughs> And you soon work out, even if you didn't know it before, that a tent isn't a very secure place to be in a storm or a hurricane. Three o'clock in the morning, we were out I mean I was seven, my brother was five, my mum and dad were there, and we were having to take our sort of kneel our tent down, you would take the poles down, bring it all down and just pile stuff on top of it with all our stuff underneath just to hold it down. And literally, there were tents flying past us. I remember it vividly. There were two and three, and even if they hadn't taken it down in time, four-person tents just flying past us. And as we brought it down, our hands were going through the canvas. It was just so fierce, the wind, and so wet. And we went and sat in my um, uh, aunt and uncle's caravan, and even the caravans that had to be brought back from the edge. But the tents, they had no chance. Now, that's the point. Jesus doesn't come in an armoured troop carrier, doesn't come in a secure palace. He comes in a tent, to tent or tabernacle with us. What does that mean? Well, it means he makes himself vulnerable. We see in Jesus' life, not an arm's length distance from the stuff you and I go through, but an entering into every part of human existence. He knows what it is to hurt He was a carpenter. He'll have known exactly what it was to hit his thumb, to cut his finger. He knew what it was to feel cold, or more likely in that part of the world, or equally likely, to feel heat. He'll have known what it was to feel thirsty or hungry, or like he didn't want to get up in the morning. He'll have known what it was to feel lonely and alone. We know that from the Gospels. He knew what it was to be betrayed. He knew what it was to feel deep grief. He wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He'll have known what it was to feel sick. Here is Jesus, the one who has made all things, stepping into not some airbrushed, beautiful version of human existence, but pitching his tent with us. The whole gamut of human experience he experienced. Not in a sort of putting on the hollow specs, 3D virtual reality sort of way so he sort of knows what it might feel like, but actually pitching his tent amongst us, being blown and buffeted around by the same stuff you and I are blown and buffeted around. Comes again and again in the New Testament. A writer of Hebrews says we don't have a high priest who is unable to identify with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way like us. Paul, as he writes in Philippians, talks about Jesus emptying himself out of all that uh, he had in heaven. In this sort of, what the picture language is, you know, the palace of heaven. And he steps down into darkness as frail flesh. It's the absolute heart of the good news of the Christian gospel. That the God whom we worship in Jesus is the God who comes close to us. The one who pitches his tent, tabernacles amongst us. Now, John's stupid, he uses that word because he knows that the Jewish readers, when they read it, will immediately think of the desert. That here is the same God who tabernacled with them and travelled with them through the very wilderness that they had to travel. And for the Gentile readers, well, they'd get what it was to pitch a tent, to be vulnerable. Now, we've just celebrated Christmas. We know that amazing picture of the, the baby, the newborn baby, what could be more vulnerable than that? not in a hospital bed or a beautiful palace but in a manger and as we're only a few weeks away from Easter we know that Jesus didn't just enter into human experience up to but not including the end he even entered into what it was to be tortured and to die John writes his gospel because he wants us to know that this is the God who pitches his tent in our midst And time and again, you're going to see this Jesus that he paints this picture of as the God who tents or tabernacles with us. But if that is who who Jesus is, he doesn't just come, if you like, in a passive way to be with us. You can be with somebody and not do anything, not make a difference. See, John is absolutely clear that Jesus comes to do something. And he comes, if you'll excuse a second T, to transform our existence. Listen uh, to verse 10 to 13. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to be children of God. What could be more transformative of any human's experience than to be adopted? To go from not belonging to a family to belonging to a family. Your whole identity is transformed and changed. That's the language John's using. He says he gives the right to be adopted as God's children. You get to belong. That transforms everything. You go from being on the outside looking in to the inside looking up. You go from being distant from God to being welcomed into the presence of your heavenly father. You go from living life on your own, under your own steam, by your own wisdom and your own strength, to living life with your heavenly Father who loves you and says, you're my boy, you're my girl, you belong. What could transform us more than being adopted into God's family? And John's Gospel is saying in every human experience and every part of life, what people most need is to know that they are invited into, belong to God's family. It's interesting, isn't it? John doesn't say, John doesn't list off a list of human woes that Jesus has come to solve. Now, we want to say, actually, in the process of people coming to know God as their Heavenly Father, he does give them the the courage and the power and the transforming presence of his Holy Spirit to change their behaviour, to discover healing, physical and mental and emotional, To begin to transform their society and their culture, to work for justice and peace. But the scriptures always start by saying that where that begins is in belonging. Finding ourselves belonging to God's family. Because it's what we were always made for. The kids and their kids groups, or most of the kids groups, are going back to Genesis 1 and 2. They're going back to it because it's a beautiful theological poem asking the question, well, why do we exist? What are we here for? And the writer of Genesis wants more than anything else to say, because God loves you. Because he wants to walk with you and know you and have you as his friend. It's that lovely picture in Genesis 3 where it says, and God was walking in the cool of the, gar- cool of the afternoon in the garden. And he calls out to Adam and Eve, where are you? beautiful picture language of God wanting a relationship with us and what John is saying is this God who pitches his tent with us doesn't just want to sort of be here he wants to transform our experience of life and transform the sort of lives we can live how well not simply by us trying harder not by some magical formula that makes life okay And if he's going to pitch his tent to be vulnerable to all the vicissitudes of human existence, he's hardly promising us an easy life or a straightforward existence. What he is saying, though, is that we get to live the human life as we were meant to live it, in relationship with him as his children, sons and daughters of the living God. And as we look through John's Gospel, we're going to find time and again people for whom the light of Jesus has come and lit up their lives and shown them the way to be God's children. Worth just a moment to hear verse 13 children born not of natural descent nor human decision but born of god in other words if you're asking me the question this morning well richard that sounds great but how on earth do i do that i'm not a good enough person i don't pray enough i'm not even sure absolutely Well, i believe in all of this is this really for me actually the promise of john is that this isn't down to what we do our decision this is about us simply being willing to receive the gift of God. We're no more responsible for our salvation than a baby is responsible for being born. We simply receive the gift of life. So he tabernacles, he tents with us. That's who Jesus is. God comes to pitch his tent. He comes to transform life. And what do we do about it? Well, as we receive that gift, John, time and time and time again, says the natural outcome of receiving this light of Jesus in us is to give testimony, to speak, and to live out what we've heard. Verse 6. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all people might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming. Into the world. And then verse 15, John testifies concerning him. Do you know, actually, as you read through John's gospel, you're going to see this theme again and again and again and again. People meet Jesus and then go tell. They meet Jesus, he transforms their life, and then they need to tell people about it. I don't know whether you've ever been on the receiving end of really good news that you're desperate to tell, but you're not allowed to. I heard yesterday that a very good friend of mine has got a job. Um, and not somebody you know so I could almost tell you but this might be podcasted and I'd better not I'm really excited for him I want to tell my other friends about it I can't can't tell a soul because he's not told where he works and he's not told he's a vicar so he's not told the church where he's working and he can't tell them yet and he can't tell the church where he's going yet and it's all very quiet and it's killing me because I want to tell people it's really exciting I think it's a great appointment I think it's great for him great for the church he's going to fantastic can't tell and I won't but what worries me is that this good news of Jesus, the transformation Jesus has done in my life, the work he's doing day by day, doesn't, most of the time, have that same sense of wanting to burst out. Because I have got a bit used to it by now. It's like that great gift that the day you got it, you thought, wow, that's a great gift. Six months later, you've forgotten it was ever new. You know, for some of us, we have to reacquire. That sense of the wonder of what it is to have the God of the universe pitch his tent in our lives. The amazement of God saying to us, you are my child. You belong. Not because of what you've done, but because I love you. The wonder of it. And if it's wonderful, then we'll want to tell people. Not because the vicar's telling us we should go and tell our friends. Not because we feel it as a duty Actually, also not just because we feel like we've got to stand up for what's true and right. Actually, simply because it's wonderful. It's great news that the God of all creation pitches his tent in the midst of our lives, comes to be with us, no holds barred, no barriers, and comes to make us his children. What better news is there than that? Don't hold back, John says. Testify, point away from yourself to the one who's given us this great gift. Three themes. You're going to see them coming again and again and again in John. As you read it cover to cover, I really hope you will enjoy it. It's a great book. It's not a difficult one. It's full of great stories, great images, lots of verses that you'll think, oh, I forgotten that I was in John. Most famous verse in the whole of the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that's there. All sorts of great stuff. And as you do so, look out for these three themes. The theme of the God who pitches his tent in Jesus. This Jesus who doesn't hold back. He's right with us in the midst of the mess and the muck of life. The one who transforms every life he meets. Yet so many people in John, his lives are turned upside down, the right way up. And then who cannot help themselves but tell others with his testimony of, you won't believe it, but. We're going to come to worship, and uh, as John and Mike come up to lead us, let's just pause for a moment. You might just want to close your eyes. We've got a moment to just take a breath. I wonder which of those three T's, if you like, you most need to hear and grab hold of this morning. Do you most need to thank God for the fact that he pitches his tent right in the middle of your life, that there is no experience you've ever been through or will ever be through, that he does not know from the inside out. Maybe it's the offer of transformation. If you've never said yes to God, your Heavenly Father, to being adopted into his family, simply saying yes, you can do that anytime, you can do it now. What about testimony? Have you lost the wonder of what it is to be adopted, to be loved? good news to share. We're going to have a couple of songs of worship together, and as we do so, let's bring to God what we've heard him say to us this morning, and ask him to go on burrowing that new good news down deep into our hearts, challenging and transforming us.